Okay, let's uh, bow our hearts again as we just come before God's word together. Well, Heavenly Father, we just ask now that you speak to us through your word. Lord, we do thank you again, as your word tells us, that it is living and powerful. And Lord, can separate between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. And Father, show us in our own lives, Father, the things that need to change. Lord, any Lord attitudes, any desires, anything that is not of you. And Father, just give us a hunger and a thirst for that which is righteous and true. Lord, help us to sell our minds on the, the things above and not on the things of this world. And Lord, particularly as we study these portions of scriptures, we do looking at eternity, looking at the things that are yet to come on this earth. Father, help us to realize that we need not to be attached to this world in any way, but we need to be found in you. And so, Lord, we just pray now that you speak to us through your word this morning. Lord, just take my words. And Father, help me to follow now the leading of your spirit. Give us all open ears to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come as far as chapter 6 of Revelation. Um, a milestone in many ways in the, the study of the book of Revelation. A very, very significant chapter for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, just to mention that a third of the Bible is made up of prophecy. Incredible, therefore, that so many in the church today choose to ignore prophecy, choose to lay it aside. Prophecy, as I've said before, is not a prediction about the future. It's history recorded in advance. You know, a prediction, as we said before, it's like us predicting the weather or whatever, or predicting a sporting event. You know, we take a little bit of information and we give it a, a, our best guess. But prophecy is the future. It's what has already happened and yet we have not got there yet. And the only way that can be understood is because of God, who is outside of time. You see, prophecy is unique to God and is unique to the Bible. There's no other holy book in the world that has prophecy like the Bible has. One of the tests that God actually gives us to prove his sovereignty, to prove the inspiration of scripture, is to tell the future before it happens. And we read this in Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. God, speaking through Isaiah, says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. And God says, declaring the end from the beginning. And for ancient times are things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. In the New Testament, Peter, after speaking about a number of things, including his incredible experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, when He's there with two of the other disciples and they see Jesus transfigure before their eyes and Moses and Elijah turn up and everything else. An amazing experience that if you had been there, you would talk about for the rest of your lives, I'm sure. And yet, Peter, after talking about that, says in verse 19 of Second Peter chapter 1, that we have also a more sure word of prophecy. You see, he compares the prophetic scripture to experience. And in effect, he says, experience is good, but no, prophecy is better. Because sometimes our experiences can, can lead us off on a tangent. Sometimes our experience doesn't always necessarily prove to be a good foundation to build on. But prophecy is something that God has given, which is sure. And he says, whereunto you do well that you take heed. We should listen to it. We should Listen to the things that God has revealed prophetically. As unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn 
and the day star arise in your hearts. So Peter says the prophecy not only is more solid and more sure than any experience we could ever have, but it's something that we need to follow as if a light that would guide us and lead us. A light shining in a dark place. Because God has given us a roadmap for the future. Now, the Bible is truly remarkable when it comes to the prophetic scriptures contained therein. In Isaiah 45, sorry, 44 and 45, we find an amazing prophecy recorded 150 years in advance. It's the career of Cyrus, the Persian king. It's detailed. He's even named in the account. And so are the details of how he would defeat Babylon. Somebody recently spoke to me and they said about Isaiah and they said, oh, he said, well, he said, we know that Isaiah was written by a number of people. I said, really? I said, how do you know that? He said, oh, well, you know, scholars have, have worked out that there's different styles. I said, right, okay. I said, are you aware that Jesus said that Isaiah was written by one person? And this individual looked at me. I said, in the Gospel of John, Jesus quotes from what is referred to as the first part of Isaiah by some academics and scholars. And then Jesus quotes from the second part of Isaiah. And he says, the same Isaiah said again, quoting from the two parts. Jesus thinks they were written by the same person. I think I'll go with what Jesus said. And the other comment that was made to me is, but Isaiah must have been written much later because of the things he records. In other words, there's no human way anybody could record those things unless they knew them, unless they were there. Well, of course, God is outside of time. God did know, and God revealed them to Isaiah. And Isaiah was, no question, written before the events of the captivity and Babylon and all of those things that we find round about 600 BC. Isaiah was written about 150 years before that time. Ezekiel 26, another amazing chapter in the Bible. It details a remarkable prophecy concerning the city of Tyre. And it's breathtaking if you look at the details, including the fact that the fishermen would come and wash their necks on the remains of the city. I mean, it's, it's a prophecy that before the event you look at and you think, how on earth can that be true? And yet we find that in an attempt to destroy the, the city of Tyre. Tyre, had, they'd moved from the mainland out to this little island just offshore. And Alexander the Great, in fact, it starts before that, some of the, the Persian kings and Babylonian kings had attempted, even Nebuchadnezzar and so on. But eventually we find that they scraped all the remains of the old city and they made this causeway out to this little island fortress and so they could conquer and destroy it. And now that little causeway, which is made of, the, made of the remains of the old city, is used for the fishermen to dry their nets on. An incredible prophecy. You couldn't have guessed those things in advance. And yet it's recorded in God's word. Daniel 11, an amazing chapter. It's a chapter that critics hate. There's 135 prophecies in just 34 verses, all of which have come true. It details the, the breakup of Alexander's empire. And two of the arms of the, the four sections of Alexander's kingdom that were kind of broke up. It, it details the two dynasties, the Ptolemaic dynasty down in Egypt and the Seleucid dynasty, which really looked after the area regarding Israel and so on, and the conflicts between the two neighboring powers and the intermarriage between them and the intrigue and so on. And it's just incredible when you look in Daniel chapter 11. And again, critics say, it must have been written after the event. Why? Because no human could have recorded those things beforehand. But Daniel did record them beforehand. Some two, three hundred years before the events took place. 
Another thing to mention, and we can look at so many other prophecies, but the prophecy is always literally fulfilled. It's worth keeping that in mind as we go into these portions now in Revelation, because some people have this idea that prophecy is okay until we get to Revelation, and then it's all allegorical. We can't really mean that, because that's just too fanciful, it's too far-fetched. And yet every time in Scripture we find prophecy, we find that it's literally fulfilled. Jesus really, really was born in Bethlehem, just as Micah prophesied. Israel really were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, as Jeremiah had prophesied. It wasn't a figurative or allegorical 70 years of their captivity. Every time we have scripture, interpreting scripture, we find it always does so literally. These were real things that were fulfilled in real time frames. Another interesting thing to be aware of is that for every prophecy we have of Christ's first coming, there's eight concerning his second coming and the events leading up to. That's incredible because there's so many prophecies that really deal with uh, the first advent of, of Jesus. Eight times more print is given over to the events surrounding his return and those are the things that we're going to start to look at. Now this period of time that we're going to begin to look at this morning is one of the most documented periods of time in the whole of the Bible. In fact, it's one of the single most popular themes of the prophetic writers throughout scripture. It's referred to by a number of different titles. We're familiar with this term, tribulation, and we often use that term. But in the Old Testament we find there's a term given the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 gives us that title. The 70th week of Daniel is a phrase that's drawn out of Daniel chapter 9. We'll look briefly at that in a short while. But it's an incredible prophecy where 70 weeks of years are prophesied for Israel and for their future. And all has been fulfilled except the last week of that period of time, the last seven years. It's also referred to this period of time as God's strange work in Isaiah 28, 21. It's referred to as the day of calamity in Deuteronomy 32, 35 through to verse 43. The day of the Lord is one of the most common titles of this period of time. Obadiah, Isaiah and Joel and so many others all make reference to that. It's referred to as the tribulation itself in Deuteronomy. It speaks of this type of tribulation that's coming. God's indignation is a title that's commonly used in Isaiah and Daniel and so on. The overflowing scourge, also in Isaiah 28 verse 15 and 18. The day of vengeance in Isaiah 34 and 61. The time of trouble is also a title given to it in Daniel 12. The great day of the Lord is the title that Zephaniah gives this period of time. So we find, and you see many scriptures there in notes that will be there in the notes as well. You know, this is such a popular theme because it's such an important theme for us to get our heads around and understand. But it's not just the Old Testament. In the New Testament we find the phrase, the day of the Lord, is used by Paul in Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2. The wrath of God, a title given to this period of time. In Revelation 15 and 14, we'll see that referenced. The hour of trial is a phrase we saw in the letter to the church at Philadelphia. They promised that they would be delivered from the hour of trial that's to come upon the world. The wrath to come is again another title that Paul gives when speaking to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And then the great tribulation is a title that Jesus gives in Matthew 24, 21, and obviously we find Revelation 2, 22 as well, as reference to this great tribulation that's coming. And then also the hour of judgment. 
in Revelation 14. So it's a, it's a very popular theme through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's just look at some of the scriptures that tell us a little bit about this period of time. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 10 through 21, we'll pick up some of the key verses. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be, and we've given the details here, shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty. And upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. You know, this morning we're reading through in Psalm 10. I don't know if you were paying attention as you were reading that. But it's a psalm that speaks of God bringing justice and judgment. That those who are poor and put down often get neglected by this world and this world's systems. Well, God won't allow that to continue. And this period of time is a time when God will deal with the proud and arrogance of man. That portion continues... The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And the idols he shall utterly abolish. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks, and into the caves of the earth, for fear of the Lord, and for the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake the earth terribly. And this is speaking of this time of judgment, and we're going to see this portion here, uh, chapter 2 of Isaiah, alluded to at the end of chapter 6 in a short while. Jumping forward to Isaiah 13, we read there, verse 6, How ye for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Now notice this, it's so important that we understand that this is a period of time where God is bringing the judgment. A lot of people get very confused, and they start to talk about persecution and that we've always endured persecution as a church and we shouldn't expect to escape persecution. Absolutely right. Don't disagree with any of those things. And Jesus said that those who would live godly will suffer persecution. Of course. Actually, sorry, I believe it's Paul that makes that, that comment. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus himself made it clear that we will endure persecution. I'm not talking about that. This isn't persecution. This is judgment from God. Very, very different thing. We'll come back and talk about that in a short while. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows. Now that's a, an idea, a concept you need to make note of. Shall take hold of them, and they shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. It's a phrase that's used throughout scripture referring to this period of time. It's as if a woman is in labor. And they shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. You see, here we're given a very clear explanation of what the purpose of this time is for. Just as we were looking at in Psalm 10 this morning, bringing judgment on the unrighteous, judgment on those who are proud and haughty, who just turn their back on God, who carry on as if there is no accountability, that God won't require of them things they've done. God is going to leave the land desolate, destroy the sinners thereof out of it. And we're told for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. Well, Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 24, didn't he? And so the sun shall be darkened in his going forth and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Again, we'll see that occur in chapter 6 in a short while. Now I will punish the world for their evil 
it's so clear what this period of time is all about. And the wicked for their iniquity, and I'll cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the gold wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. Now there may be some that would try and suggest that these are prophecies that have already been fulfilled, and they had a local application to Israel, and so on. The context doesn't fit, the language doesn't fit. This is speaking of something the like of which the earth has never experienced. And to try and suggest, try and make this somehow fit events in the past, it just doesn't work. We've never had events such as described here. In Zephaniah, we read in chapter 1 verse 14 to 18, uh, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens greatly even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. Notice it's referred to as the great day of the Lord. And it is Near. I mean, if, if Zephaniah says it was near back then, then for us even nearer now. We know, we see the events and the things on the horizon. We talk about labor pains of a woman. We're so close now. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble. Zephaniah records for us. And then Carizona says this, And I will bring distress upon men, that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Now this isn't just specific to events in the Middle East, this is global. Because all men are caught up in this, in this rebellion against God. Because they've sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. Now, looking at the New Testament, in First Thessalonians 5, we read, but the times of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, and there we have that phrase, shall so come as a thief in the night. For when they, speaking of unbelievers in the world, shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman. There's that idea again, with child, and they shall not escape. It's interesting that Paul spent just about three weeks with the Thessalonian Christians when the church was planted. And it's interesting the things that he taught them during that time. He went straight for the key stuff. He went straight for what is going to happen in the end times. He spoke to them about the rapture. He spoke to them about the second coming of Christ. He spoke to them about the tribulation. He spoke to them about antichrist. You know, so often today, there's subjects that we kind of put to, to one side as if, well, we don't really... Let's focus on the gospel. But what is the gospel? That we've been saved from God's wrath. Well, this is part of God's wrath being poured out upon this world. But we have a wonderful hope. In Isaiah 20, verse 20 to 21, it says there, Come, my people. Well, who are God's people, personally? Well, in the context, we could certainly say here that this is referencing the Jews. It may be a reference to the Jews. But I think if you look at the context, this is looking at something greater and broader than that. And I would argue this is us in view here. It says, Enter thou into thy chambers and shut the doors about thee. 
Interesting. Jesus spoke of going to prepare a place for us. And then he would come again to receive us to himself. He says, hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Now, if that isn't enough, look at the next portion. It says, for behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. No question now what we're talking about. We see in the context of those other scriptures, this is clearly talking about this day of the Lord. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. So it's speaking that in this time of judgment to come, that there's a possibility that God's people will be hidden, be taken out of the way until God's indignation be overpassed. Now, in the Old Testament, it's kind of these things are concealed. We have a few veiled references to these things. But not so in the New Testament. Jesus makes it very clear in Luke 21 verse 36. After speaking about all of these events, he says, Watch you therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now some people say that people that believe in the rapture have this kind of escapist mentality. Yep, I want to escape. I don't want to stay here for what's coming. As we look in a moment in chapter 6 of what's coming on this earth, you've got to be crazy to want to stay to endure those things. And again, people that would argue saying, oh but you know, we, we're told to experience persecution. Once again, this isn't persecution. This is the wrath of God. Who wants to put themselves in the path of God's wrath? Particularly when... On the cross, Christ has already paid for our sin. Matthew 24, verse 7 and 8 we read, For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And that is the portion that we'll be looking at this morning. This phrase, the beginning of sorrows, seems to refer to the first part of the tribulation time as these things start to unfold. But Jesus then goes on and says, except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. It's going to be that severe. But he says, but for the elect's sake. Now don't think for a moment that's referring to the church because it's not. It's referring to the Jews. Matthew writes his gospel to the Jews. It's a very much a Jewish gospel presenting Jesus as the king of the Jews. And it's very clear from a number of verses that we can pull, and we were study this when we went through Matthew. This reference is clearly to the Jews. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, he's here, or sorry, lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very Elect. Now, we're going to look at these things in detail, but just to give you an overview, we're dealing with a period of seven years. How do we know that? Well, firstly, we find that in the book of Revelation itself, in chapter 12 on a couple of occasions, in chapter 11 as well, we have clearly defined for us this period of time as being two periods of three and a half years. The first period we typically give the title the beginning of sorrows. And that's referred to as 1,260 days. That's three and a half years based upon a 360 day year, which we could talk about some other time as to why it's 360 days, but all prophetic years are counted such. The second period, which we refer to, and Jesus himself gives us the title, the Great Tribulation, is also a period of three and a half years. Or 42 months is another way this is given to us. In the book of Daniel, we find the expression times, time, and half a time. 
So time being singular, times plural, and half a time being half of that. It's a period of three and a half years. We find with Nebuchadnezzar when he went mad for that period of time, recorded in Daniel chapter 4, that he went mad for seven times. It's seven years. It's just an expression that's used. And that same idea is also used in Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. It's speaking of the time that Israel will be fleeing from Antichrist and hiding in the wilderness. And it says that they'll be there for a time, times, and half a time. So we combine the first and the half. We know we know each length is being three and a half years, so clearly we know the whole is also going to be seven years. But also from Daniel chapter 9, as I mentioned earlier, Daniel has given this incredible prophecy. This will last for 490 years. But there was a break after 483 years, clearly so indicated in the text. It's a time when God's clock with Israel stops. And that period of time will start, that clock will start ticking again after the church is removed and when this period of tribulation begins. And it will begin as we'll see in a moment with an event that's very specific to Israel. So we've got this period of seven years. The church from scripture will be raptured, taken to that place that Jesus promised to take us to, the place he's been been preparing for us, will be taken before the tribulation begins. And then after this period of time, after God's wrath has been poured out, Jesus will return and establish his throne, his kingdom. And we'll see that when he returns, and just as Jude tells us, he will return with his saints and we will come back with him. And Jesus will establish his kingdom. And we'll, we'll, we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And we'll look at those details more in chapter 19 of Revelation and chapter 20 uh, when we get there. But it's that first portion that we're really interested for now. Now, you'll also find as we start to go through the book of Revelation, we're going to see the judgments that God brings upon the earth broken down into four different groups. Firstly, we're going to see seven seals. These seals that were on this scroll that we looked at last time, as each successive seal is peeled off, so another judgment unfolds that God then meets us out on the earth. We're then going to find that's followed by six trumpet judgments. The seventh of those ushers in the next set of judgments, which we find as seven thunders. We're not even told what those things are. John is told not to record them. Maybe because we'd find it just too uncomfortable. And then finally, we have these seven vile judgments that are poured out upon the earth. God's wrath unrestrained upon this earth. With time like none other. So those are the things that we'll look at as we go through the book. We're going to see other things... Two witnesses will witness during that first period of time, and then they'll be called up to the throne in heaven. We're going to find there's 144,000 Jews that we'll look at in the coming weeks. Also, that seem to be given this task of preaching the gospel. We'll talk about that when we get there. They're also taken out to be before the throne in heaven. And there's also people that come to know the Lord during this time. So we often refer to them as tribulation martyrs. They also are taken out. We'll talk about all of those details as we go through. But for now, let's get straight into the text. Let's jump into chapter 6 and we read, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. So you remember that Jesus, this Lamb has been slain, the, the, all the focus and attention has been on the Lamb. He goes now and takes out of the right hand of God the scroll. Jesus, remember, is the only one worthy, just not just to open, but to look upon this document. And as Jesus starts to claim back the title of the earth, 
He starts to peel off the scrolls. He's the only one worthy to do this. The first thing John says is that I saw the lamp open the seals and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. And it's interesting, it's almost like a, a thunder that echoes, reverberates back through time and through into eternity. You know, this is if you're watching a film, this is when suddenly the music changes and becomes very dramatic. And that's the kind of thing that's going on here because Jesus now is effectively starting to claim the title of the earth. It's his, he's been granted it, but now he's claiming it back. He's worthy to open these seals. And all that's going to follow in chapter 6 through 19, we're going to see is the outworking of the Lamb, effectively resting from the hand of Satan, all that Satan has now lost. All that he stole originally from Adam, he's now having to give back. But he's not going to do so without a struggle. And I saw and behold a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. So now we come to the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's such a common phrase in our vocabulary today. We're so familiar, there's kind of these themes occur in all sorts of films and, and whatsoever. But as much has been written, both in fact and fiction, about these uh, horsemen. Now... We've got no reason to doubt that there's not some literal fulfillment of these things. But certainly what is interesting is the colours of the horses that these horsemen are going to ride. The first one we are introduced to here is this white horse. Now, at the end of the tribulation in chapter 19, we see another white horse. That one very clearly, we have its its, uh, rider identified to us because we're told that it's Jesus. It's the word of God. No question who it is that's riding the horse at the end of the book and riding this wonderful white horse. Well, this is an individual that's coming on a white horse seemingly as if in the place of Christ. Now we tell he's got a crown, not the same crown as worn by the rider in Revelation 19 by Jesus. There the crown is a diadem, it's a royal crown. But here the crown is a Stephanus crown. It's the crown that's worn by somebody who's conquering or somebody who's won a victory or something like that. Clearly this rider has every intention of coming to be victorious. But notice also what we're told. That this rider has this bow in his hand. Now it's interesting because you notice there's no arrows. Immediately we kind of think of this as being a, a weapon of war or so on. Now, it's interesting because some commentators draw a parallel here with Nimrod. If you remember back in Genesis 10, Nimrod, we're told, was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, it's an interesting allusion because Nimrod, we find, became the first world dictator. Set up the first world government, effectively leading on from Babel. And this character here, that we have in Revelation 6-2, seemingly is going to try and do the same things. But I think the word bow here, I don't think it specifically has reference to do with a bow as in a bow and arrow. Some commentators think it does, and it may do. But the word here is the same that we have it's in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's the same word, it's the word toxon. It's the same word that we have translated in Genesis 9.13, where we have the rainbow. It's a sign of a covenant. And this individual comes... On this white horse, effectively, I believe, in the place of Christ, with this crown as if coming to conquer and to to be victorious, and he comes with this bow. I believe a sign of a covenant. And that's what he's coming to do. 
effectively posing as Christ. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 23 to 25, we're told that this individual that's coming is going to magnify himself in his own heart. He's going to be antichrist. We're told that in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, the king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And his power shall be mighty, but not in his own power. He shall be powered by the devil. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people, speaking of Israel. And through his policy, also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. It's been asked before, witchcraft. <laughs> Pun intended, but what craft is he is referring to? It's going to be all manner of things that are ungodly. They're going to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart. And by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without hand, we're told. So that's in Daniel chapter 8. So this individual seemingly then is Antichrist, who's coming, riding a, a white horse, coming as it were in the place of Christ. And Antichrist, the title, there's loads of titles actually given to Antichrist, but the one that we're most, most familiar with being Antichrist simply means in the place of Christ. And that's what he's doing here. And he's coming, bringing false peace, a false covenant. I believe this is the covenant that's referenced in Daniel chapter 9, where this individual, this prince who is to come, will come and establish a covenant with Israel and the surrounding nations for seven years to bring peace. Could you just imagine, just for a moment, if somebody stepped onto the world scene now and could somehow barter some sort of peace agreement with Israel and the, the other nations in the Middle East, do you think how popular they'd be? You know, all this news of the American elections at the moment, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Donald Trump is our man, but what would happen if Donald Trump suddenly somehow managed to barter a peace agreement in the Middle East. Suddenly everybody was suddenly, let's sit up and take him seriously for a moment. He'd get a lot of respect for doing something like that. It's been a problem that no president so far has been able to resolve. And whoever this individual is going to be, when they step onto the world scene, and they do this incredible work of bringing peace where everybody thought it was impossible, everybody's going to start to look and take note. So, in our first three and a half years, the first seal is opened and we find this white horse comes out. This bow is, I believe, the sign of a covenant brought by Antichrist. And then we get to the second seal. And John says, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And then went out another horse that was red and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. And they that should kill one another... And there was given unto him a great sword. So now this is the first of the three other riders that we're going to see. And we don't know much about the riders themselves. No focus really given to them. Other than the fact of this one seems to be bringing war. He's taking peace from the earth and given this great sword. Now in Matthew 24, we looked briefly earlier at that passage. Jesus said, many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ. Well, that's what we've just seen with the first seal, and one specific individual that will come as Christ. But then we're told that you shall hear of wars and rumours of wars. 
Now, in the context, those those are quotes from the Old Testament. The, the first, the nation against nation, wars against wars, nation against nation. Nation against nation comes from 2 Chronicles 15, verses 1 to 7. And in the context there, it's speaking of a total conflict uh, all around. It implies, in the context here, a global conflict. Kingdom against kingdom comes from Isaiah 19. And again, speaks to whole conflict of the Aryan view. Well, the Aryan view here is the world. Jesus uses his expressions again, speaking of the world. Now, the first world war is the first time we've had this kind of conflict, nation against nation. Second world war, which in many ways was a continuation of the first world war. The same thing. This implies then that we're going to have some sort of global conflict on our horizon. Now, it's just interesting because... Just looking at some numbers, 40% of all global spending is spent on weapons and weaponry. Now, I haven't got the dollar to pound conversion. You can do this yourself if you want to. But $3 trillion per year is spent on weapons. That equates to $8.5 billion a day. Or, if you like, $100,000 a second. There's 27 countries with long-range ballistic missiles that we know of. There's at least 10 that are nuclear capable now. 50% of all scientific research is given over to weapons and weapon systems. You know, there's never been a weapon been devised by man that has not been used. And the, the flip side of that is that every eight seconds a child dies of hunger. Well, in, in eight seconds we'd have spent nearly a million dollars on weapons and weaponry. You know, people sometimes blame God for the problems that exist in the world, but you only have to look at these kind of things to realize that man is the problem. And it's man going after his own desires and ambitions. Now, it's interesting because in Daniel, again, when we look at the career of Antichrist, we find that he's going to be the head of a ten-nation confederacy. Now, it's all very interesting at the moment, because people used to think it was going to be the EU. And of course then the member states came above ten and... So people started to say, well, maybe it's not that. And then people started saying, well, there's ten regions of the world that various political groups have divided the world into. And economical groups have divided the world into ten regions. And maybe it's that. I don't know. And we don't know. But Satan somehow, or Antichrist, will somehow be given and will take control over these ten kings. Could even be ten kings around the Middle East and kingdoms there. We don't know. We'll see. But it's going to have certainly a geopolitical effect around the world. Now if this beast comes and following Antichrist's peace treaty in the Middle East then brings war, effectively a third world war, it's going to be very easy to see the world suddenly say we need a leader, we need somebody that can sort out this mess. And of course if someone like Antichrist has already set up this peace treaty with Israel, the surrounding nations, somebody's got to solve this catastrophic situation of this war that's going on. So war then breaks out. We then get to the third seal opening. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Jesus, back in Matthew 24, said, there shall be famines and pestilences. 
and earthquakes in diverse places. And that's what we see here, just as Jesus said, and just as John is seeing now being fulfilled. Our history is recorded how the wars have led to famines and plagues and so on. It's recorded that more people died from disease and starvation after the First World War than died in the war itself. This third rider that we see here is coming on a, a black horse, and we hit this cry, three measures of meal for a denarian, effectively. In our language, that's a day's wage for a loaf of bread. Uh, somewhere in the region of 50 pounds for a loaf. You know, nothing else really starts to matter. You know, when food is such a scarce commodity, all the luxuries we're so familiar with suddenly will seem so unimportant. You know, the world is going to plummet towards poverty all around. You know, they've, they've been genetically modifying crops so that they won't produce a second crop. They grow, they produce the crop, but then there's, there's no... Uh, information genetically there to create another crop following and there's all sorts of and of course there's money behind all of these things uh, Barry Smith the evangelist used to say that by controlling energy you can control nations and by controlling food you can control individuals well this is going to put global power in antichrist hand you know you think back of the situation that we had in, in um, Egypt with Joseph and the famine there and how all of a sudden Pharaoh becomes so powerful because everybody's selling everything they have just to buy food. They sell their land, they sell themselves just to get food. Well, the same is going to happen. An Antichrist is going to be the recipient of all this wealth. So this black horse we see worldwide famine coming. And then we get to our fourth seal. And we read, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth. This is the quarter of the earth to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with all the beasts of the earth. Now, beasts, often we think of, you hear that expression, we think of larger creatures, larger animals, but this more, more than likely will be small beasts, bacteria, disease. And Jesus himself spoke of pestilence as well as being one of the things that would come. So rather than large beasts, we're talking about small bacterial things and diseases. I mean, how many things do we hear about going on in the world today? Diseases that are crossing borders that are really quite worrying. The recent situation in Brazil with this disease is being spread by these mosquitoes. And they've had so many other things over recent years as well. There's apparently now a disease that's not strictly a bacteria. I don't know how to treat it. And these kind of things, we, we start to hear more and more about the, the dangers of these things. Things that have been genetically modified and suddenly things get out of control. This rider seems to come, it's a combination really of the, the first three riders. It's famine, it's pestilence, all of those things, all combined, and war as well. And it may well be that chemical warfare or nuclear warfare may pay, play part in this. But the really scary thing here is to look at the impact that we're told is a quarter of the earth is going to be killed. A quarter of the earth. Now, that's somewhere in the region of 1.3, 1.5 billion people. It's the equivalent of all of Europe, all of North America and Canada, and Central America and Mexico, 
all of South America, all dead. I mean, it's just unbelievable. There's been disaster movies, and I believe this is all part of Satan's plan to kind of condition people to get ready for these kind of things. But none of them have really captured the scale of what we read about in Revelation. We're talking a quarter of the earth dying at this point. I mean, it's going to be carnage for those that are left on earth during this time. You know, just, again, be mindful that Jesus says, pray that you be counted worthy to escape these things. You see why? You see why we don't want to be here for this? And why, of course, we won't be here for this, because this is God's wrath being poured out. But Jesus' blood has paid for our sin. We don't need to be here to experience God's wrath, because Christ experienced it for us. And we get to go and worship him in heaven. This is for those, and a phrase that continually reoccurs during the book of Revelation. It speaks about those who have made this world their home, effectively. That's the the implication. And there's lots of people that have made this world their home. You know, for us, this world is not our home. We're citizens of heaven. And so this pale horse comes, the fourth seal, and a quarter of the population dies. Now, slight change here with the fifth seal. Because now our attention is drawn to heaven. And we read, And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, this is in heaven, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, the first thing I want to point out is, these are not those who have died as martyrs through the history of the church. Because those who have died as martyrs through the history of the church, anybody who has died as a martyr up until the time of the rapture, at that point, they will receive new bodies and they will go back to be with the Lord forever. So this is a different group. This is a group seemingly that have come to know the Lord after the rapture. And suddenly you think how many millions of people around this world that love and serve Jesus Christ are suddenly taken from this world. And all those loved ones that we've spoken to, that we've shared the gospel with, that we've told about these things, suddenly realize what's happened. That's going to be the biggest wake-up call ever. And many, many people will come to know the Lord in those early days of the tribulation. They'll have missed the rapture. But as a result of their testimony, a result of the witness they hold, the world is not going to want to hear them and so they'll be put to death. They'll be slain for their testimony, for the word of God. Because they'll be going to people saying, look, this is what the Bible said was going to happen. And of course the world powers are not going to want that being said. They'll want to silence anybody that starts to say, this is God bringing judgment. And notice what is cried in verse 10. And they, this is those that have been martyred, cry with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Now there seems to be a kind of a a current situation going on because this isn't just throughout history. And of course, that is something that God addresses. But this is something specific. Those who are dwelling on the earth at this time, they're saying to God, how long until you address this situation? It's interesting to note these individuals are given, if I may put it this way, wedding garments to wear. Now I don't believe that this group will become part of the bride of Christ. Because the bride are those who are taken at the time of the rapture. 
the church effectively. Well, this group missed out. They rejected Christ when they had opportunity prior to the rapture. But after, seemingly there's a number of individuals. In fact, we're told it's a great multitude. We're told in verse 11, And white robes were given unto them. I'm sorry, given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, just a short while, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. So they're told, okay, they're saying, when will you avenge our blood on those that dwell on the earth? And it's, well, wait, because there's going to be more. There'll be more that will die in the same way that you've died. Wait until it's all done, then God will pour out his wrath. And we'll get to see that when we look into chapter 16. Because there's a very specific moment. In fact, if you want to just jump ahead, as God starts to pour out his wrath. Verse 4 of chapter 16, it says, And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And it goes on. And look at verse 5 and 6. This is the, the judgment now. This is after all those who will have come to know the Lord during the tribulation have been brought in. I believe from this point on, no individual will be saved during the tribulation. And it says, verse 5, And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. I, I find that interesting. That at this point, an angel has to jump in and say, By the way, God is just in doing this. Because I think it's going to seem so horrific, so horrible, when we look at what's happening, and we almost need to be reminded that God is just in bringing this judgment on the world. You see, this is why we're not God, because we probably wimp out. But God is just. And notice verse 6, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and now has given them blood to drink, but they are worthy. That's the fulfillment of that which we're seeing here in verse 11. They're told to wait, because there's going to be others that are going to be killed during that time of the tribulation. It's going to be very, very unpopular to be a follower of Jesus Christ when you have Antichrist wanting everybody to follow him. I believe also we're told in Revelation 19, and we'll look at it when we get there. That there's going to be wedding guests that are there. That are given this white apparel to wear. Well, I believe it's those that we've just seen there. And those others that will come out of the tribulation. They'll be given this white apparel. They will be invited to the wedding. They'll be wedding guests. They won't be the bride. That's reserved for those who've put their trust in Jesus Christ now. Then the sixth seal is opened. And behold, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And when God records in scripture a great earthquake this is a great earthquake the sun became black as sackcloth of hair you know we've had earthquakes before that have sent uh, and, and volcanoes and all sorts of things that have sent uh, ash clouds up into the air that have affected the climate for a couple of years following the event well this is such an incredible cataclysmic event that we're told the sun became black now probably as a result of this ash cloud or whatever it is that's released into the atmosphere following this earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. Britain's an island. 
We, we've had a few minor tremors here, but nothing that kind of fits this description. We're talking about an earthquake that is so violent that it's going to shake every single island on planet Earth. Just go back up to verse 13 for a minute, because we're told there that the stars of heaven fell. The, the Greek there is aster. It's from where we get our word asteroid. I think it's very probable that what we're seeing here is suddenly asteroids starting to fly into our atmosphere and crash into the earth, causing all sorts of chaos. There was one in Scotland last week. I don't know if you saw it on the news. Somebody had videoed it coming in. And a lot of um, things that come through the atmosphere get burnt up. We have kind of boloids as well, which are another type. They're kind of gassy um, composites. Um, but they tend to burn up many of them before hitting the ground. But we know that there's been a number of asteroids that have actually hit the earth there's a very big one in Arizona, in America. It's left a crater that's a mile wide and 600 feet deep. Of course, those uh, in the know tell us that's what killed the dinosaurs. I don't doubt it did them any good. Um, something like that hits you. But I don't think that's what killed the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs struggled after the flood when the world's climate had changed dramatically. And uh, I think they struggled. For one of the reasons, I believe, also is the Earth's uh, atmosphere had changed so much where... Before the flood, there was double the oxygen content. There's lots of good evidence to sustain that. After the, the flood, even, even some of the dinosaurs they found, they've got such small nasal cavities that with the oxygen content we have today, if they were to breathe through their noses enough oxygen, they just set their noses on fire with the friction of the air going through. So oxygen must have been greater in the past for those kind of creatures to survive. So there's a number of reasons why those creatures are no longer with us. But certainly we've had a number of asteroids and so on landing on the earth there was one that I discovered in uh, back in 1989 apparently it was a big big asteroid uh, it was apparently 50,000 miles away from the earth and it passed 10 hours from the earth as we were orbiting it was very very close it was classed as a near miss the only problem was they didn't notice it until it had gone which isn't a lot of good um, but you know there's lots of these things and what I find interesting is we've got so many films that dramatise this kind of stuff that even as these things start happening, people are kind of used to it already. It's, oh yeah, I saw this at the cinema, I know what happens. But this is not going to be something at the cinema. This is going to be reality. I don't think any of us can imagine what it's going to be like on earth when these start to, these things start to happen. As God pours out his wrath, as these things, this is just, by the way, the beginning of the birth pain. This is just the start of these things. So this great earthquake, the sun becomes darkened and the moon turns blood red and so on. And then the kings of the earth, verse 15, and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. This is what we saw back in Isaiah, that prophecy we read earlier. And said to the mountains of the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. How did they know? How do they know that it's the wrath of the Lamb? Well, I'm guessing some people have gone to their Bibles at this point and started to try and figure these things out. And word has started to spread around the, the earth of what actually is going on, despite what the governments and the cover-ups are trying to say. Notice who's involved here. They've got the kings of the earth, great men, all our scientists and likes of Richard Dawkins and so on. The rich men, all the wealthy people. The chief captains and the mighty men. That covers all the elites. And then we've got the bond men, every free man. That's pretty much everybody else. 
Everybody is, is caught up in this. And we're told they hid themselves in dens and in the rocks of the mountains. These, if they are asteroids, which seemingly they are, start landing on the earth. And these earthquakes are going on. People are going to try and go, your houses are not going to be all that secure. People are going to start to go to places where they feel safe. And they'll find rocks and holes in the ground. And notice, they said to the mountains, the rocks fall on us. They don't mean to literally kill them, but they, they, they mean to cover them. Hide us from the face of him. Uh, this, in all honesty, I think is the most remarkable set of verses in the entire Bible. Because I cannot understand how people will be in this position. These incredible events going on, unlike anything else the world has ever known. They'll recognize that this is the wrath of the Lamb. And they'll still reject him. How? How can the heart of man be so dull as to not respond when you know that this is God's wrath? Well, I tell you, the only reason I can come up with is because of this conditioning that now for 20, 30, 40 years Satan has been doing through the media, entertainment systems and everything else, convincing man subtly that we can deal with this, that we can overcome, that man will win out in the end. The great day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? Well, the answer to the question is quite simply, no one will be able to stand. We'll pick it up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, as we look at this incredible chapter, just this beginning of sorrows, oh, Father, we just feel a little uncomfortable thinking about these events that are going to impact people that we know. People that live in this area, live in the Portsmouth area, live in this country. Lord, with all probability looking at the the signs of the times, within the next few years, potentially, these things could well start to occur. At any moment, Lord, you could come and take us back to be with you. Oh, and Lord, looking at this, we praise you and thank you that you have made a way for us to escape this wrath that will come. We thank you that our place will be before the throne, worshipping you. But Father, may this, if it does anything at all, stir our hearts and give us a compassion for the lost. Lord, you've given us this record, not just to give us information, but Lord, I believe to stir us, that we would go to this lost and dying world and plead with them. Lord, your word spoke of those that would go to the highways and the hedges and plead with people to compel them to come in. Oh Lord, now more than ever, people need to be compelled to come to church, to come to Jesus. Lord, give us a a hunger and a thirst for the lost, to see them come to know you. Father, this morning we pray for those in our own family that don't yet know you. Lord, many of them we've been praying for for years, we lift them again before your throne this morning. We pray you unblock their ears and open their eyes that they would see you. And Father, we pray for others who you would put us in contact with, that you would grant us the wisdom in our speech, that we would say things, Lord, and speaking your word would convict them of their need for a saviour, that, Lord, you would bring in a great harvest of souls before that time when you come and you take the church to be with you, before, Lord, this day of the Lord begins. Because, Lord, your word tells us that you are long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And so, Lord, because of your great mercy, because of what you have said in your word, we bring this prayer and request to you.
Father, keep us as we go from here today. Lord, just give us a comfort and a peace and an assurance of our standing with you. But Lord, again, our hunger. Lord, and a, a reality, Lord, a knowledge of the times and the urgency of the days in which we live. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.